Welcome to Drop Everything Podcast number 74. I'm your host, Dan Holzman. On this podcast, we have a special guest, Mr. Troy Grisa. Before we get to Troy, though, let's thank our sponsor, the IJA, International Jugglers Association. Go to juggle.org and find out about this great group of jugglers, all their products, and of course, their yearly festival. Next year to be held in El Paso, Texas. Now, if you want to be on the podcast, if you're looking to sponsor the podcast or be an upcoming guest, do like Troy Grisa did and reach out to me personally to be on the podcast. You can contact me at danjuggle at gmail.com. Okay, now drop everything, get ready to listen to Troy Grisa. Welcome to Drop Everything Podcast number 74, my special guest, Troy Grisa. Hi, Troy. Hey, good morning, Dan. And you live in uh, Portland? Oh, yeah, the juggling mecca. Is it a juggling mecca? What's the scene like in Portland, and where do you go for your weekly meeting? Well, our weekly meeting is on Wednesdays at Reed College, but I'll pretty much go anywhere. Anywhere you go, you'll get some audience engagement and somebody who says, I can do that, and they can throw a cascade. Uh, how long has that one in, uh, been going on in Portland? It's been going on for, for quite a few years, right? Yes, I want to say 20 years. And do you go to the yearly uh, Portland Juggling Festival? No, I'm really excited. I'll be helping uh, my friend Spencer sell t-shirts this year. So first time going. First time. So where'd you, where were you at before you got to Portland? Well, I lived in Florida, and that's where most of my performance experience is. Uh, we'll probably spend a good time talking about that. But I was born and raised in Wisconsin. So I went Midwest, South, and then West Coast. And where were you first exposed to the flow arts? Well, I was first exposed in college at UW-Milwaukee at a World Beats show, just a bar. You know, some LED poi caught my eye, and I took out my phone and ordered a set, and uh, pretty much accelerated from there. Now, so you saw poi and you ordered a set. Were you, were you interested in other things before that, like sports or any kind of juggling? Oh, yeah. Most people, when they see poi, they're like, nah, not for me. But you, you liked it right off the bat. Well, it was a slow build. It's funny, because every question you ask, we're going to go back a layer, like a mm -hmm. Shyamalan movie. It's like, well, well, actually, the scene before that, the, the true root is... Is devil sticks. Well, actually, it's it's juggling balls. Well, actually, it's juggling a soccer ball. Speaking of sports, I was never very good at the mainstream ones, so I always sought alternative physical challenges from juggling as an eight-year-old to juggling fruit out of the fruit bowl, much to my mother's dismay for my entire childhood, bruising apples and oranges and everything. First real prop, though, why don't you guess? What do you think it was? It was kind of a strange one. Plate spinning? Not plate spinning. No. Uh, frisbee? Well, I did love Frisbee, but I didn't have the skill with it. It was Devil Sticks. Okay. Well, that's not... Was it Devil Sticks or Flower Sticks? Oh, I always get... You know, we called them Devil Sticks, but it is Flower Sticks, yeah. Yeah, the Flower Sticks are one with the softer middle stick, and usually it's a, more of a control prop. Instead of hitting it back and forth, you're more like spinning it on top of the other hand sticks. Yes, isolating it. Yeah, so Flower Sticks, definitely. So Flower Sticks were your first prop even before you bought this LED poi. Oh, yeah. And what got you into the flower sticks? Um, I had a buddy who just made it look so fun. You know, he was a musician, so I was already envious of his guitar skills. And he picked those flower sticks up, but he just had such an accentuated dance with it whenever we went out. I'm like, man, you look so goofy bringing those things out. Kind of made fun of him, busted his chops the first two or three times. Then uh, once he was able to ignore me, I realized how fun it was. So I'm like, I'm getting a set. Hmm. So he'd just go out to like bars or any place you guys went out to like a party or something? Anywhere. And we'd just start, we'd just start using his, his flower sticks. Yep, and he always got attention from it. People loved it. 
So you think you were more jealous of the attention or of his ability to perform uh, with this prop? Definitely to perform. I was envious of the attention a little bit, but his joy and control seemed like a much deeper, you know, intrinsically motivating endeavor there rather than just getting people to look at you. And how many years after you started practicing did you start performing? And what do you think is that cutoff for most uh, jugglers? When should they start performing, you think? Oh, great question. I fiddled around collecting flow props and juggling props for about four years before I started performing. Small time, you know, at Luau's was where I first got started with fire. And the cutoff, so you mean like the launch point from the time from when you started to when you perform? Yeah, I mean, not, not everybody has to perform. There's certainly a lot of jugglers who never want to put an act together. But do you think that's a natural progression of your juggling to eventually get up and perform your art for other people? Oh, absolutely. And it's um, just the philosophy behind it for me is it makes you better because you want to learn more to show it off then you want to perfect it well it definitely makes you better i mean it's, it's something where the uh, learning curve is very sped up because if you make a mistake or you embarrass yourself in front of other people you you want to fix it right away oh yeah now what kind of performing did you do so you did luau's were you doing just the fire spinning or were you doing juggling as well yep yeah so i started with a fire staff just mm -hmm. a little sort of baton to get people's attention and then i would uh kind of leave it in the sand and use it to light my fire pole. And that was where I really excelled. And then each, oh, let's say each month or so, if I had a gig every week, each month I would add a new prop. So pretty soon I added the dragon staff and double staffs and then juggling clubs, playing with one of them and then playing with two of them and playing with three of them. And eventually I added, each prop added about a minute. So at, at any given point nowadays, I think I have a solid 15 minutes that I could go. And are you mostly a fire performer, or you also do some LED work as well? Yep, both. Fire is a lot more spectacular. Uh, in Florida, since most of my gigs were outdoors, I was able to do mostly fire, and it's often very sandy. Even if it's just an artificial beach, sand is really nice for fire performances because you can set the prop in the sand and use it as sort of a lighting tool, especially at sunset and after dark. And can you describe the dragon staff? Is that the one with the, the spokes on the end? Yep, yeah. I like the word spokes. I've also heard them called heads um, or wicks. Yeah, a bunch of variations of it. I have a couple nicknames for the Dragon Staff that I can't really say on this podcast, but uh, I, I think that is the most attention-grabbing prop. Not in a bad way. I don't want it to sound like I don't like it. I love it. But it is just so much fire and such fast rotation. I, I like to say it's a lot of bang for the buck. Yeah. Yes, there are performers who are very talented with it, but then there's me, right? And I represent the group that's not very good with it, but knows the moves that really get audience attention, where you lay way back and you let that thing roll down your forearms and then down your chest and maybe down your leg. And uh, I'll film myself and watch the audience reaction, and those kind of moves always get a huge response. Yeah, so there's lots of rolling on the body, which causes the spokes on the end of the the staff to spin. Exactly. Now, what's, what is the puppy hammer? Is that a new prop? I've certainly heard of that being a, a new prop and a new prop name. Uh, do you know what the puppy hammer is? I sure do, yeah. I've, I've got one made by my sponsor, Flow on Fire. Uh -huh. It has um, a poi-like feel to it, but then it's also like a staff if you spin it fast enough. My friend Raven calls it the noodle staff. It's because it's like a, a staff connected to uh, some kind of chain or something? Well, how, how would you describe it? 
it's a poi head on either end of a really long rope or a string or a tether. Yeah. So the coolness of it is you get it started by spinning it like poi and then you let go. And the contact it makes with your armpits and your elbows allows you to go hands free, but still draw the same patterns. And you're using a series of pinch points to get a more zen-like vibe and aesthetic to it. I personally do not excel at that prop. Um, it gets tangled up a lot for me. I can spin one, but uh, not performance ready, not like my friends are. Mm. Sounds kind of like a, a fire dart. Does it have some of those aspects to it? Absolutely, yeah. It's like a two-headed fire dart. Now, I've seen some very impressive LED props lately. Is there a particular... I know you're sponsored by a company, but uh, what are some of the companies that are specializing in the in the high-tech LED props nowadays? Oh, man. You know, don't get me started. This is, this is my wheelhouse right here. Mm -hmm. Yeah, everybody knows Flow Toys and the juggling community for the Vision Clubs. Yeah, I've got a set of those. Their competitor is known as Light Toys, which I also have a large array of their props. Then there's some, some smaller ones like Spin Optic, which is a, actually a product made by Lanternsmith. And then there's Ultra Poi, makes a series of Poi that light up. But yeah, let's go from the premium, maybe maybe we'll do the good, better, best, right? Okay. So good is gonna be Flow Toys. That's the $100 set of Poi, $100, maybe $125 for a set of like a baton with just lights at the ends. Okay. And better is Lanternsmith, because the entire prop lights up, they have a fiber optic system, which allows the viewer to sort of understand what's happening more with the prop as a whole. And then the best is Light Toys. I spent $1,800 on their premium product, Visual Poi, and then $500 for their double staffs and, and maybe 300 for their Poi. Very, very bright. Low battery life, but maximum performance output. And these are programmable? You can kind of... Uh create different looks or different cycles? Oh yeah, yeah, so they have remotes. Right. There's some lines to be blurred here because all of these props could be used to perform. It would be a different aesthetic. Light Toys, on the other hand, isn't just a rainbow. Okay, I'll program corporate logos into it and hologram them through the air. Forgive me if I get this wrong, but I think it's 220 pixels that flash millions of times a second. So I'll take a selfie, snap it, and I can actually spin my own face through the air. Yeah, that's the pixel poi. I've seen a lot of people use those for corporates or even on cruise ships where they use the company logo or they use some theme. And it's very effective. They're quite heavy. And I think it's sort of limited in what you can do trick-wise. But certainly as an effect, it's very, very popular. Oh, yeah. Yeah, there's even... Um, golly, there's so much you can do with it. There's even, to kind of go back to fire, something that I wanted to touch on is... Firework poi, or or they call it um, like you can do smoke bombs. I've also seen uh, is it pyrodanza or pyroterra? They put like sparkler bombs in the end of the poi, and then they pop the ends out, and these gigantic fountains of sparks come out, and they're spinning that instead of even LED or fire. It's like next level. I guess you need quite a big space though. Is it sending off like, is the performer in any danger from the sparks, or or do they have to wear any kind of eye protection? Oh, yeah, they wear a lot of protection. Yeah, definitely natural fibers. And, you know, I, I can't tell you if they protect their eyes or not. The prop is usually pointing away, but there's, it's like grinding a weld. There, there's sparks just flying everywhere. So, yeah, you don't want to take that to the eye. Now, you sound like a guy that would like Burning Man. Are you, are you a person who who done the Burning Man Festival? Ah, oh, man, you know, I know it started yesterday. Yeah. Today is Tuesday the 27th. So it, so it just started yesterday. 
I have never been, and that's just because the desert doesn't appeal to me as much as sort of a lush rainforest. And considering typical budget that I have, I, I prefer to go to a more jungly music festivals and, and experiences. Now, are you currently a college student at Reed? Nope, nope. Uh, I went to college in Wisconsin. I was a school teacher for four years, and then I moved out here to work for 3M. So I sell abrasives, adhesives, tapes, and safety gear. Uh, 3M, that's a big, is that a big uh, department store? What is 3M? Yeah, great question. 3M is a, the adventures of the post-it note, for example. Uh, I don't know about the adventures of it, but I do know what a post-it note is. Did I say adventures or invention? Oh, no, I thought you said adventures. I thought, well, <laughs> I, I didn't know the post-it note was so adventurous. I've certainly heard of the invention of the, uh, of the post-it note. Yep. So we, yeah, I've heard it's the, it ranges from 30 billion to a hundred billion dollar company. Um, and I'm an industrial customer specialist. So I call on here in Portland, I'll work with Intel and various manufacturers to try to get them the right tapes and, and adhesives. But then I'll also work with a lot of sandpaper too. But interestingly, you know, we have a wide portfolio. The juggling community, uh, uses a lot of 3M products. So I'm really popular because I, uh, hook up some people with gaffers tape a lot. They, they seem to like that as well as uh, gripping material and various powerful epoxies to stick props back together. So did 3M invent the post-it note? Is that their claim to fame? Yep, it was, uh, the, the story's kind of funny. It was an accident, you know, one of those stories where he was working on something else and then he wound up getting a post-it note out of it. So, you know, there's 42 divisions, including ceramics, micro-replication, thermal elastic polymers, all that stuff, and they all talk to each other and just keep inventing stuff. It's funny because the post-it note is such a simple idea, just a piece of paper with some stick-em on the back, but I guess it did create kind of an industry. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, I've got a, a $540 roll of uh, liquid protection fabric that has post-it note adhesive on the back, and we use it to protect surfaces. It's I bring that product up kind of as a joke, but it, it has led to a lot of uh, solutions in manufacturing. And what did you study in college that led you down this uh, career path? Uh, English education. So I was an English teacher. <laughs> Okay. I was a teacher for four years, um, and I think I'm good at, at public speaking, so a recruiter took to liking me. Mm -hmm. And that's how you got to work for 3M, is through a recruiter? Just a bit of nepotism, met the right person at the right time. Yeah, it's a really good opportunity, plus a chance to move to Portland. Uh, who wouldn't jump at that? I like Portland. Now, is this something you're transitioning from? Do you want to become a full-time performer, or do you like the combination of having a job and then having the ability to go out and do side projects with your juggling and flow? Golly, that is such a tough question. I would absolutely love to perform full time. Unfortunately, I'm not good enough. I'm really good with fire. You know, I'm not afraid of it. I know how to be photogenic. I know how to take pictures with people. But when I watch Wes Peden, I'm not on that level. I'm, I'm not even I'm not even in the same ballpark. Well, I mean, not everybody has to be Wes Peden to perform. I mean, Wes Peden is sort of top of the food chain. Mm -hmm. If we all held him as the standard of we have to be that good of a juggler to perform, I think a lot of us wouldn't be performers. Yeah, good point. Yeah, I guess that was kind of a dumb thing to say. Well, let me put it this way. To perform in Portland, you pretty much have to be as good as the ambitious performers out there. Mm -hmm. And just a quick name drop, we've got Eli March and Scramble, uh, known as Circus Luminescence. They perform pretty much at all the places I would want to, and I'm certainly not on their level. So I'm a, I used to be a big fish in a small pond in Florida where I could not say I'm poaching people's gigs, but I could sort of out-compete out my competition. 
based on my experience and my wide range of abilities with different props and LED uh, toys. But out here, the talent is so immense. You know, I feel like I'm standing at the bottom of a mountain looking up. And what kind of practice do you do then? Are you, are you actively trying to up your practice regime, trying to get better? Or are you sort of accepting that as your place there in Portland? Yeah, I'm definitely trying to get better. Absolutely, I am getting better. There is such a wide variety of jugglers and flow artists here. Uh, we got Magic Monday, there's a spin jam every Tuesday, and then Reed College on Wednesday. So for the first half of the week, I learn the drills. The second half of the week and the weekend, I drill them, and then I follow up uh, the next week. So just etching, chipping away at it, building my skills, and taking them to what little gigs I can find. And when you go to these meetings, is it mostly flow? Are you seeing a mix between the juggling and the flow, or is it mostly juggling? It is mostly flow. Uh, most of the ladies spin poi and hoops. Most of the fellas spin staff and poi and um, juggle. And what do you think is the most popular juggling prop? Would it be clubs? It's either clubs or three poi. Yeah, I guess three poi has really come quite a long ways. Is that something you do as well, the three poi? Absolutely. I love juggling poi. And who are your inspirations when it comes to the three poi? Well, of course, Chris Kelly, he's kind of the West Peden of Poi, as well as a fellow named Timmy Tech, but, or Timothy Goddard, I should probably use his actual name. But locally here, we have Willow Solo. Um, I would say he is probably my main inspiration for 3Poi. He puts out a good bit of content, really accessible, easy to talk to. And my friend Raven, they both can keep those 3Poi in the air, and then when they catch them, they can go into the weeds. So they're essentially two styles in one, and I just... Love that. I can't get enough of watching them. And is five the most uh, poi you've seen juggled? I've seen Chris uh, do five poi. I'm pretty sure I've seen him do six in a bit called Things on Strings. That's his company. Lots of things with Things on Strings. And then his other perform stage act. I'm pretty sure he throws six uh, just for a flash at the finale. But there are, I don't know if it counts as poi, it's those counterweights in old school juggling where it's like a gigantic ball on either side and they hang them on their shoulders and okay. those guys get six in the air. Do you know what I'm talking about? Yeah, there was a Russian juggler who did that. It's more of like a poi with a ball on each side of it. Yep. Yeah, I forget his name, but he was quite good. And it did sort of a, a precursor to the poi juggling because he was around quite a few years before people started juggling poi. Yeah, he's in a circus act, and, and um, a couple other iterations of that have occurred. There's this strongman act where <laughs> they treat the large, like, let's call them, let's just call them, like, ball poi. Mm -hmm. The ball on either end of the tether, and they treat it like a really heavy weight, and they're wearing, like, the, you know, old-school strongman outfit with big mustaches. And uh, the two of them, it's, it's a hack, you know, it's kind of a gag. And they act like it's super heavy, and then they start swinging it and juggling it. And uh, I think the, the poi spinner in me just cannot get enough of that. I love circus style over flow style sometimes, because I need to break the tension with a laugh right at the beginning. Right. I mean, it can be taken kind of a, a little too seriously sometimes. I mean, yeah. it's art artistic, but sometimes it's artistic to the sort of the fault of a little too much expression, not enough technique maybe. Yeah, and I would also say not enough audience engagement. In my blog and in my blogs, I and in my lessons as a teacher, I taught always engage your audience. It's kind of the elephant in the room. In my opinion, it's kind of awkward if you don't make eye contact and you don't have to talk to them. You're not a, it's not comedy, but to have little breaks in between moves where you 
face them and look at them. You know, how do you feel about that? Do you feel like a lot of performers are, are very inner focused during performances and that they could spend more time looking at the crowd? Uh, definitely. I mean, contact and relating to the crowd are probably two of the most important things I would try to teach. I mean, even if you're doing juggling to music, there has to be a time where you can kind of make that connection and get that back and forth going with the audience. And obviously, if doing any kind of talking or comedy, you want to connect with them. I see a lot of jugglers who don't seem to uh, incorporate that as much as they should, perhaps, into their into their routines. Now, you talked about creating contact or con uh, with through your vlog and your blog. Uh, can you explain what those are and how we'd find those? Yeah, it's kind of um, back burner, sort of budding project for me. It's managed by my friend, so I just switched domains. It used to be flowartscurator.com. I'm pretty sure that fell off, so the other one's not available yet, but I've got lots of content. I'd like to read you a poem from it today. Okay. But yeah, let me give you the overview. Flow Arts Curator is designed to get conversations started about the business side of it, about the philosophy side of it, about the social side of it, and a lot of it, the, you know, the YouTube channel, for example, is me talking to the camera. The most recent one I did is Five Ways Flow Artists Leave Money on the Table, you know, trying to coach my, my community on how to make more money from their performances. Another one is, for example, five reasons flow artists are so comfortable at spin jams. Uh, and I go into the philosophy of these amazing events and uh, just break down all the reasons that they're great for growth and the psychology behind a social interaction with a physical prop in your hand. And um, I'm really passionate about it because I miss teaching. And in my current role, I'm not teaching as much as I used to be. So it's kind of an outlet for me. And what are some of the ways that the flow artists are leaving money on the table? That's a very intriguing, because I think flow artists, in comparison to jugglers, are having more trouble making money. What are some of the ways they're leaving money on the table? I'm going to pull it up, so give me just a moment. I got it on my phone here. And how important do you think it is to make money? I mean, do you think it's something that, it, it, at a certain point, it really adds to your practice? Or does it kind of change your practice for the worse sometimes? when you start to focus on the money aspect of it? Um, yeah, I, I'm going to take a lot of flack from the flow arts community for this, but I do believe that money is, is very important because it leads to upgrades and props. And I think that if you're performing, you should have a growth mindset and you should be going from sort of a dull, diffused light to a really brilliant light. Mm -hmm. uh, as, and the same thing applies to your outfits, right? So unless you're already like locked and loaded with a bunch of sparkly, fantastic, clean, good looking outfits, as well as some high quality props, I think a lot of your money should go back into it, um, just as mine did. And what kind of outfits do you wear? Are you someone who likes to go shirtless or do you uh, show off your physique? What kind of uh, outfits do you perform in? Oh geez, well I, I cover the whole wide variety. Uh, out here in Portland, performing at Dante's Inferno, there's a there's not pressure. It's a good idea to perform in less. Now you want to start wearing a lot, and over the course of your performance, you want to you want to find ways out of your clothing. So in my mm -hmm. present environment, I'm learning the whole uh, sort of cabaret style to juggling and spinning performing. But um, traditionally, I've worn like a silk vest and a long sleeve underneath, you know, a button down, some nice slacks, dress shoes. When I have my say in the matter, uh, when I work for a professional company called Aerial Events. Uh, my boss had me wear, I think it's called a sarong. I call it a skirt. Okay. And, she, you know, shirtless with flowers on. and Right. 
I think that some people believe it's good for me to show off my physique. I don't want to get burned, and I do a lot of contact tricks where the ball, the fireball, you know, bounces off me. So when I have my way, I like to be a little more protected. Makes sense. Makes sense. Now, when you did the luau's, did you perform sort of as a traditional luau style, or or because I've seen a lot of the Hawaiian fire dancers, was that more for the luau's? Yeah, I was actually in Hawaii, so I got a good look at at those uh, outfits. I didn't wear the grass skirt or anything like that. I usually just wore a tropical sort of tank top um, with a nice vest so you can see the pattern there and then sort of like black skinny jeans or nice slacks and then uh, shoeless in the sand. So it, was a, it wasn't a traditional luau. It actually was a, a pirate-themed luau every week uh, where we had these pirate performers, which I could go on all day about them, some, some of my greatest performing mentors have ever had. And they knew the business side of it. They knew the social side of it. And they absolutely, their performance was just watertight. And it, and it really was humorous. So it got me in a great mood before I'd go on. And that kind of was a sideshow. There wasn't a standing outfit, um, just enough to match the tropical theme. Now, you're sponsored by a, a flow company. How does one become sponsored? And what does that mean? Is it just, is it financial? Is it money? Or is it just props? Yeah, it's, uh, it's just props. So it's, it's just props financially, but like socially, it's access to a prop maker. Mm-hmm. Britt Hilton is the owner of Flow on Fire, and Britt has been such an amazing prop maker for me. I don't know when I met Britt. It would have been, I want to say, like 2016 kind of time, maybe 2015. So a sponsorship means I get a pretty generous amount of Regripping, re-wicking, and a budget for new props each year, provided that I provide feedback on those props, as well as uh, one community project per year. So there's, it might be 20 now, but when we started, it was 15 captains, and there's a lower level of sponsorship, 15 delegates, and then there's um, like 15 recruits. So we've got 45 or 50 of us working for this company, you know, handing out cards, handing out stickers. When we go to festivals, sometimes I'll just give my props away if there's somebody who needs them. We get discount codes, the whole nine yards. It is absolutely wonderful to be in a group chat on Facebook um, with the captains on this team. All of us are pushing the boundaries of a flow art, mostly boy, uh, in some way. And so the sponsorship is less valuable in terms of money and free prompts and more valuable in terms of easy access to these other incredible performers. And what festivals have you gone to? Are you a teacher at the festivals or... Do you go just sort of as a, a workshop attendee? What's your role in these different juggling and, and flow festivals? I would absolutely love to teach um, like poi juggling or any of the props I picked up. Usually I go just to rec- recreate. Mm-hmm. I work a lot, so it's nice to, to maybe not work at when I'm, when I'm taking off. So I usually just be a student and, a, and an observer um, and an, you know, an active practicer at like uh, Flow Arts Institute events like Flame. I'm going to Pacific Fire Gathering in September. So I won't be teaching there, but I'll definitely be learning. And that sounds like a good one. How long is that Pacific uh, Fire Gathering? I want to say Thursday, Friday, Saturday, and then come home Sunday. There's a group that sort of has a, a circuit of them now, the, the Flow Arts. Yeah, absolutely. I know Kevin Axtell is a big part of that. Oh, man, I met Kevin at Flame. He's so good at teaching. If I was to have a checklist of how I was graded as a teacher on the lessons I taught to ninth graders, he would hit all the best practices. You know, he has an agenda, he has an objective, he has what I call I do, we do, you do. The way he teaches, he demonstrates it, and then everyone does it as a group. 
And then he gives you, hey, we're going to give you five minutes to do it. I'm going to come around and correct each of you individually. He just hit all the best practices. As long as his name comes up, I think he's worth unpacking both as a performer and a teacher and a friend. He just seems like such a genuine, nice guy. He's great. I've had him on the podcast and I've worked with him on the IGA Festival. Have you ever been to the IGA Juggling Festivals? I would absolutely love to. I haven't made it yet. What about next year in El Paso? That's in Texas? Yeah, I would love to go to that. I don't see any reason why I couldn't. That's like a Mecca. Like you, Is that where uh, in the Islamic religion they travel to a holy city? I think IJA would function as that for <laughs> me because juggling is basically my religion. Yeah, it's definitely a destination. And certainly coming to your first IJA festival or uh, EJC festival is certainly an experience that any uh, juggler is, should look forward to because... Uh, Especially IGA is different than EJC. They both have their appealing parts. But uh, maybe next year in El Paso will be your first one. Oh my gosh, I know. I'm excited. That would be so great. I've never been to Texas either. Now, you have a statement here in your... I have some information about you, uh, Troy. You said all props lead to clubs. Oh, yeah. What does that mean? So that's sort of my thesis that I use to describe myself. I'm going to get tongue-tied here because I okay. need my conversation partner to sort of like build off what I say, but let me put it this way. Okay. There's a lot of staff tricks you can do with a single club. There's a lot of poi tricks that you can do with the club with every prop. You eventually toss them in the air and catch them again. And you realize they're not the most conducive for controlled tosses, right? With poi, I have a lot of control, but a lot of people don't, right? You pick up a club and you toss that thing and you're like, Ooh, that's actually pretty easy to control. Flats, anti-spins, uh, doubles, triples, balances. It kind of is everything you like in a prop in one. And I'm not the only one to say this, but poi spinners, most of us end up picking up juggling clubs. And then they kind of have this, oh, what is the emotion? And they kind of like admit that they gave in. Like, you know, if they come in and now they have a set of clubs, I'm like, oh, look like you got the, uh, sometimes people call them the stiff poi, or they call them stick poi. They, because they're so similar. And those lines are really getting blurred with Lork Nichols putting out Vulcan Tech Gospel where you treat the club as a poi. So in my opinion, if you like poi, you're going to love clubs. Plus I've seen the poi with the stiff handle now. Yeah, static tethers. Static tethers, that they call it? Yep. That's kind of a new innovation that you can certainly do some different stuff with. Static tethers. Yeah, I've seen Jeremiah Jacobs. I still don't know how he did it. He balances them on top of each other. The weight of it, it doesn't seem like it makes sense, but yeah, he does all these chin balances with it, you know, while he's, everyone's seen that with a club, but to see that with Poi, if you don't know what that technology is, it's a real mind warp. He's very, very skilled with it. I remember watching him at Flame perform with static tethers. I think he had three or four Poi in the wind. I mean, it, it was, and he kept it up there. He kept it balanced. It was just, it was kind of like, um, it almost looks like CGI. You know, it almost looks like there's some sort of puppet action going on but it's just a balancing trick. And so are you doing more club juggling yourself? Have you found that the clubs are taking over your practice or just, it just is a destination, it's just something else to add? But are you finding that the, the clubs are taking over a bit? When I go hiking or something, I pretty much pack my clubs into my backpack and then I see what else I can fit. If I wind up with room, then I'll throw a point in and then I'll throw four balls in. And uh, something about the practice with clubs I feel like since I got my vision clubs and since I got new, my new fire juggling clubs with LED knobs on them, I just get such a good response from people seeing the LEDs and the fire. 
because I'm getting mm-hmm. with them. That uh, it, it's like the uh, once again the most bang for your buck in terms of you know what you can work on that's going to get the best response socially. When you practice with division clubs, do you practice with them lit, or is that just something you save for performance? Mm, I pretty much save them for performance and for. Um, when we're camping and I want to wow someone, somebody nearby, I'll bust them out on full brightness. Sometimes I'll bring them out to like shows. I definitely bring them to festivals. Uh, there's nothing like passing with them. I'll tell you that much. When it's dark out and you're passing with them, it's like, uh, oh, I don't have a good analogy. It's like something out of the Matrix. And do you find them to be pretty stable? Is it a prop that breaks down, that has a lot of trouble? Or do you find that you don't really have to do much to keep them in good operational condition? Oh, well, they're made by Flow Toys. So you know that they're really well made first of all and secondly um durable that's kind of the same thing but they have a lifetime warranty and they're 550 dollars. you do hope you get some service with that and you do you absolutely do um they also release updates for them so if you get bored of the you know 25 or 30 patterns they actually added i think like 75 more you can download so there's no shortage of visuals to get out of them as for the construction compared to other props the vision clubs are i believe henry's pirouettes Right? That's where the, it doesn't have the swirled handle. It's all one piece, right? I'm not too familiar with them. I've seen them. I don't think I've even juggled them per se. I've never been one who's who sort of gravitated towards that kind of stuff. I like it. Recently they had a, I went to the EJC, they had a performance by uh, Jugglissimo, where they were using a lot of the new technology. Mm-hmm. And I think it's very, very effective, especially for performing. It's just, as a comedy juggler, it wasn't something that I was really drawn towards. Yeah, and I am drawn towards comedy juggling, but, but the joke I always make is I had to get the vision clubs because I'm not good enough or funny enough, so I just kind of lean towards the LEDs because I had to make up, you know, I had to compensate. <laughs> well, I think when you're doing walk-arounds or any kind of sort of public performance, having LED props, like you say, it's not cheating per se, but boy, you get a lot of bang for the buck. So if you have a nice yeah. costume and some lit props, in, in some situations, that's enough. Yeah, I mean, certainly compensating for less juggling skill through more impressive props is a way to go. Uh, like I say, especially for walk-arounds and gigs where you're sort of doing a, a multi-hour kind of thing, where a lot of times you become sort of a, a moving uh, wallpaper or just some kind of something to look at as opposed to be interacted with that much. Yeah, well, you know, I I like that, but I also really like taking pictures with tourists where I was in Florida and even in Portland. In some places, you, you can't do it for rules. You can't have pictures in there. But uh, for the most part, if you get a gig, I think it's a really valuable service to add. Take a picture with someone, and I let them hold my clubs. You know, I let them hold uh, torches when they burn down a little bit. I teach them to hold it up in the air, you know, stand upwind. And uh, the parents love to take pictures with their kids, and they kind of have this cool lighting, and they're with this crazy, sweaty, kind of got some soot on my face or on my arms, juggler guy. And I'm probably out there in about uh, 500 photo albums just floating around. So I do like to interact with the crowd a bit, and they'll tip you. Yeah, that, that, that personal connection does lead to tips, so that's always nice. Mm-hmm. The reason you were on the podcast is you're one of the few people that has actually reached out to me. I mean, normally I'm reaching out to guests, mm-hmm. and you actually contacted me to be a podcast guest, which I really appreciate because uh, I'm looking for different perspectives. So being on the podcast, is there any particular philosophy or ideas you want to represent uh, out to the public? Yeah, absolutely. So the main reason that I reached out is because I want to start my own podcast and do exactly what you do, Dan. Okay. 
Um, I want to get as many swings at the bat here as I can, figure out how you do it. it. sounds like you reach out a lot, so you're sort of cold calling. You've got a sales entrepreneur side to you. So do I. I am very passionate about using juggling and flow arts to sort of supplant sports. Uh, as a teacher, I saw a lot of kids who didn't have sports, and they missed out on a social and physical benefit and sort of magnifier of, of youth and of exuberance and of passion. You know, as a teacher, I brought juggling to kids, but you know, that's your teacher. It's not, it's not cool. I want to start some sort of program that maybe starts online and then goes to schools um, and even retirement homes and just bring these really simple arts like boy or ball juggling to sort of underserved or under-motivated kids and then uh, elderly folks even who, who need to increase neuroplasticity. Well, that'd be great. I mean, you see a lot of martial arts studios. You see dance studios. Mm -hmm. We don't have enough sports slash flow arts, hula hoop, poi, movement type studios. Is that something you'd like to open, like a movement studio? Yeah, you, you read me correctly. I would absolutely love that. I love to build a space. I like to play with LEDs and, and different sort of lighting effects, mirrors, keep it clean. You know, there's a couple of them here in Portland. I would, that are, you know, they're in like a metal fab shop. So they're not, you know, you, you definitely want to keep your shoes on. You know, there's, there's people grinding next door, kind of mm. paint sometimes. So I would love to open a more clean sort of one, but I like the grungy feel some days, but you are totally correct. I would love to have a nice place like in California. Flow Toys has flow space. Have you ever heard of that? In Emeryville. I've been out there a few times. Yeah, they have a weekly flow jam. Can you tell me about it? Oh, it's fantastic. It's every Wednesday night and... Uh, it's a little dark for like regular juggling, but it's mostly for people who have the illuminated props. Mm. So I, I usually stay out more out in the hallway so I can juggle. But it's a wonderful space. It's a big space, <laughs> uh, very, very professionally done, very aesthetically pleasing. Uh, I'm a big fan, I'm a big fan of what they do out there. I know they're going to have the Club Congress is going to be held there next year, the Club, uh, Kevin Axel's event. So maybe that'd be a good chance for you to come out and check it out. Oh, absolutely. And what I tell you, you know, that's, that's, that has flow in the name. It's a flow artist space and they're holding club Congress there. Those lines are, are actively being blurred because they're so parallel. The skills are parallel and one makes the other better. And you do a lot of teaching. They have a lot of workshops out at the flow center out there. How do you teach your private poi and juggling lessons? Do you do those online or do people come to you in person? And what kind of uh, experience and feedback have you gotten being a teacher of poi and flow? Well, since I moved in November, I haven't done any private lessons. That was to supplement my income as a teacher. And so I would charge, you know, nothing crazy, but I would teach usually younger kids, kind of the ADD kid with maybe like kind of like too hyper for sports in a way, still pretty young. Usually it was the mother would say, you know, I just kind of don't know what to do. It seems like you're really energetic, but you also control it. Do you take medication? How, do you meditate? I'm like, no, no, no. I use these things and I'll actually show them a set of poi, either if I have them on me or on my phone or something, and they go, wow. And I tell them I perform, and they go, wow, you know, I'd love to get my son or daughter, get those in their hand. But, you know, if I try to give it to them, they won't think it's cool. Can you do it? Absolutely. Yeah, I'll get in there, and we'll, we'll hang out outside. I'll bring a speaker, play music that they like. Most of it is kind of just being a, a big brother, a big sibling to them, and uh, coaching them, you know, cleaning up their weaves, showing them tossing, planting the seeds so that they can sort of cultivate them on their own. It's not like a serious circus coach where I'm in you know, the Russian gymnastics situation. It's more of just a big brother type situation. And the, again, a lot of bang for your buck on those. 
because you're burning off that kid's energy, you're giving them something to do that's not on a phone, and you're just building a relationship with, with a little guy. Well, it definitely sounds like you're moving in a very positive direction. You want to do more uh, workshops, you want to open a space, you want to do a podcast. And have you started the podcast at all yet, or, or is that just a, an idea for the future still? Yeah, I don't have the long format that you do. I'm trying to keep them to 15 minutes, usually with five talking points, and then each one is like a, a minute or two with a nice intro and outro. I write a lot. I don't post them on my blog. If I have 15, 20 minutes to myself, I like to have content that I can quick pull up and record. The podcast is, I want it to be, it's on YouTube. It's not on podcasts app or SoundCloud or anything. I just want it to be talking points for our community because when I look online, I see a high level of passion. I see a lot of opinionation, but I don't necessarily see uh, the patience and the sort of slow form thought that is achieved through writing that breaks down the counterclaims to such controversies as should you perform for free? What kind of aesthetics are most important to which audience? And it's like a lot of these Facebook comments are just knee-jerk reactions that are super opinionated and they don't give any, well, no, that's not true. They give some, but the counterclaims are really what acknowledge the gray area. And I'd like to spend a lot of time breaking down the controversy of this highly passionate group of people saying, you're both right, and here's where the line needs to be drawn. Um, it's a very thin line. And so I spend a lot of time on those controversial topics. I'm trying not to list them off here, but I spend a lot of time in controversy trying to, to share my thoughts so that others will talk about them. Well, that's an interesting idea that should you perform for free. Yeah. Uh, is, that, is that a controversial idea? And, and which side uh, of that do you come down on? Oh, man, I come down on both sides. You know, I think that you should perform for free when you're getting started because you're probably not good at working a crowd yet. Once you get to a, and I'll just say a certain level, then you start charging 50, then you start charging 100. I think your goal should always be 500. So I kind of plateaued out at about the uh, two to $300 range, you know, 200 on average. So I think I've got a ways to go, but I've got this whole uh, flow chart of when you should and when you shouldn't. But to put it simply, both sides are right. Don't you agree? Well, there's definitely not time for free performances. I mean, if you're taking the, the, the role that someone could have been paid for and you're, the only reason you're getting the job is because you're willing to do it for free when they had a budget for a performer, then you could say you're taking money out of someone's pocket. But at the same time, you have to get experience and you're not always going to get the first jobs being paid jobs. You're danged if you do, and you're danged if you don't. And the problem is you get de demonified. Is that a word? If you do take the job from someone, but if you try to defend it by saying, I'm looking to get good so that I can charge eventually, and I don't want to undercut people, that doesn't matter. What only matters is the event that triggered the emotion, which is the poaching event. Well, I think the street is the place that you, mm -hmm. I wouldn't say you work for three because you're working for tips, but that's a good place to start because you are not getting paid by a, a sponsor, so you are sort of working for free with the desire to make money. And the more successful you are, the better you connect with people, the more money you make on the streets. So certainly that as a first working experience teaches you a lot. Yeah, good point. Hey, I had a thought for some recurring gigs, I've done the first one for free, and then I sat down and showed them my invoice afterward and said, hey, this is gonna be recurring. I felt as though I was able to more easily ask for like 200 to 250 for like a 30 minute or one hour show. Do you think that that is a bad practice? I don't do it anymore, but at one point I kind of liked it. Well, once again, it's the idea that if you're able to make money, then you should make money. 
if you have to get in there for free for the first gig, they should pay you for the first gig. And then you should be good enough to say, well, this was my introductory price. Doesn't have to be your full price or as much as you want eventually. But if you're, if you're driving someplace, if you're getting your props together, if you're getting your costume together, there's a certain amount of commitment and effort you've put into something. The desire to be paid is a very legitimate, uh, honest desire. And the desire to make more money the longer you do it, I think is a very sort of honest, growth-minded desire. Absolutely. Working for free, I think there's certain situations where it makes sense, but I'd be very leery that you're not stepping on someone else's toes and taking the job from a professional performer. Yeah, so the if I was taking it from somebody else, I would I would never go for free or even for a discount. I'm going to go full price. What I'm talking about is in Florida, there's all these outdoor restaurants, and I ask them if they have fire performers, and when they say no, I say, well, would you like to would you like to hire me to be one? And they say, not really, you know, it's not in the budget. And they kind of hem and haw a little bit. And I have salesmen in my blood, and I kind of know how it works. You give a free sample, you know. I say I'll do one set to one song. And if you like it, then I'll come back and I'll start doing three to five. And then I'll start bring, I'll start hiring on other people and we'll have more and more fires lit for your audience. Conversations like this, nowadays it's not relevant because I don't do that anymore. But I really like to sort of use a business approach with flow artists and jugglers to see if they can adapt and sort of take on new ideas. Do you think that maybe jugglers are kind of hard-headed sometimes when it comes to their business? Well, I don't know if hard-headed is the right term. I mean, certainly, yeah, yeah. because you see a lot of people, whether it's taking workshops or classes or work on developing better promotional material, I think we all see the need for it and we all understand the importance of marketing. Mm -hmm. I mean, I always saying, you know, show business is two words and my partner has a very successful corporate coaching program that mm -hmm. people have been taking for years. So I think the idea of, of once again, professionalism and trying to make a living at it it changes a lot because once you go to that realm of I want to make money and I want to do this as my, my livelihood, well, then you have to do some compromising and you have to do what you're doing, which is going out and selling. And certainly if there's a situation where they don't use performers and you want to give them a sample of what a performer could bring to their business, that seems like a very, like, a very reasonable sales approach. Yeah, which leads me to one of the, the points in my uh, bit you're leaving money on the table. Uh, number one is is a lot of us in our community we weren't creating invoices, so now I just have a template that I use. And you know what I really liked what you said about five minutes ago. You said getting your props together, getting fuel, driving to the destination, and the opportunity cost of not doing that somewhere else. Right? Mm -hmm. Those are all items that go on your invoice. If you're like, oh, you know, my performance is only worth, let's say it's like $100, your time is worth more than that, first of all, as a human. And then there's fuel, it's $15 for a can, and then there's a safety, and usually you throw them at least $50. You got you to gotta know how to write an invoice. And I feel like a lot of the flow artists, performers, they just don't do the step of creating an invoice. Can you share with me, obviously you don't have to share your prices or anything like that, but sort of what are some of your line items or, or maybe somebody that you know, um, what are some line items on a juggling performance invoice? Well, I mean, they're pretty simple. I mean, a lot of it has to do with travel because <laughs> travel is the one factor that sort of changes. The show basically stays the same, but certainly having an invoice charge for additional travel. And a lot of people have other items too that if you want something special, they're able to upsell. I mean, magicians do this more than jugglers, but a lot of times they'll have a, 
a gift bag or a particular toy or giveaway. Or also they'll have an extra feature like, oh, if you want fire, well, then fire is $50 extra. Mm. And when you mention a safety, you're talking about a, a secondary performer that goes with you to act as like a fire safety. Do you usually perform with, with somebody there to provide a, a safety element? Yep. Every time um, my insurance will cover if something goes wrong, but that's sort of on the legal side of it. I like to have somebody right there. I'll even ask somebody at the venue. You try to find somebody who's sort of medically trained, somebody who knows how to work a fire blanket, a uh, fire extinguisher uh, on the sand. It can get really hot. So you want somebody to know how to sort of dig it down so it's not going to burn anyone's feet. If you set your prop down, there's a lot of benefits to having somebody there, but they ain't doing it for free. Right. That's probably a good way to also get experience if you offer yourself as a, oh. a fire safety to other performers and see how they handle themselves in performance situations. Yeah. That's probably a good way to get experience. Yeah, that's a great point. Now, what's the future hold for you? So you have your job. You're selling the, the sticky stuff <laughs> for the corporation. Yep. Where do you see yourself going in the next few years? Well, right now, my main goal is to get my act together for Dante's Sinferno Cabaret. It's uh, two remixes of Star Wars songs. And uh, I'll take you through my act. It's two fire swords to a really dark Darth Vader-y song. And then I set those in a stand and I light up two fire snakes, which is both of, you know, both of those prop combos have gigantic wicks. So it's a very epic, fast moving, really, really high heat act. And then I transition into the next song, which is a remix of, you know, the Star Wars cantina theme. It's, it's a remix of that, an electro swing remix, and I do a juggling and poi act to that. So the future for me is I want to get that act dialed in. And then what about doing fire in venues? Are you finding it more difficult? Do, do fewer have uh, fire spaces? I mean, certainly after a few of the incidences where uh, you know people's clubs burn and stuff like that, fire became a lot more difficult to perform. Do you find it that it's um, fewer places are now allowing fire and a lot of your fire gigs are outdoors. Like yep. this Dante's Inferno, is that a indoor burlesque space? Yep, it's an indoor burlesque space. It's a bar where they will change out what's on the space. Sometimes they'll have a, a, sort of another mini stage up there for acrobatics. They'll have a dancing pole. They have go-go dancers. You know, it's a very, oh, what's the word? Sort of like metal or hardcore kind of dance place. But there is a lot of space for, for jugglers there. Not a physical space. It's got a bit of a lower ceiling but it is really well received there to do flow arts and juggling performances. So my focus is to master that venue, is to master the cabaret that happens every Sunday. Because when I was in Florida, again, I was a big fish in a small pond. I could get away with these, I would call them a mediocre act, like pretty epic with all the fire, but not as technically talented as what I see out here. So my goal is to reach the average out here of performers and that will be measured by audience engagement uh, at that one particular venue. From there, that will be a springboard for me to, to reach out to other venues and use my success there as a personal goal achieved for me, as well as a business set springboard to say, hey, look, I've done great here. Uh, I'd love to bring it to your venue. But there's just not that many places you can do fire in Portland uh, indoors for money. So to be a real sniper, you got to pick the one and work it. Yeah, that's what I think. It's just the venues that do fire now are fewer and fewer. I mean, some outdoor venues, of course, allow it, but there's very few indoor venues. Uh, I mean, even on cruise ships, they used to let you bring fire on, and now they're a lot more leery about it. 
So I just wonder what the future of fire performance uh, has in store as, as venues become more and more prohibitive to fire. Mm. Of course, LED is picking up, and I think LED is that gap, that bridge between you know, what people want to do in the dark. And if they can't do fire, LED is still a very effective format to, to perform with. It certainly can be if you get one of the premium products. Uh, if you have an average one and it's not super dark, you can barely tell they're on sometimes, especially if you don't really clean your props with a Q-tip and get all the dust out of there. It's kind of diffused too much. Having invested in like the really, really bright ones, uh, even when you have the really bright ones, it doesn't always get as much attention as the fire did. One's primal and one's modern. One activates a gut reaction. The other is more of a, oh, nice toy you got there, buddy. Yeah. And what about this, uh, This what did you call it, flowetry? The, the poems are based on the flow? Do you want to... We're getting towards the end of our time. Do you want to dig some of those out and let's see what that's like? Maybe I'll give you some some choices here. Okay. And this is poetry inspired by the flow arts. Yeah, here's one. Okay. This one is called To Film or Not To Film. Okay, this is about me using a phone to watch myself instead of a mirror, specifically filming myself in slow motion. And uh, just re-watching and re-watching what went wrong. I can't, like, hitting myself in the face or, or dropping something or <laughs> dropping everything. And uh, technology, just like with LED clubs, uh, the technology in my phone has allowed me to, like, accelerate way faster than, um, you know, jugglers maybe from the 90s uh, because they couldn't just set up an $8 tripod in their smartphone and watch themselves in slow motion. Okay. I mean, it's certainly a, a valid learning tool. Let's see how you approach that with uh, poetry. Yeah. All right. Yeah, here we go. There's a way to reveal hidden truths. To get the whole story, you must act like a sleuth. Dig into your mind with the help of slow motion. If you review your footage, new doorways will open. Many tricks I have learned after studying clips of myself struggling to perform certain tricks. When I sat down to watch me in struggle mode, I no longer felt like my head would explode. You must film yourself to observe subtle movements. This is hella important if you're keen on improvement. First off, you know that if you reminisce on the times you succeeded, you'll be less likely to miss. You'll construct a notion of what it means to perform a deliberate movement with proper form, especially if you're inconsistent. Work smarter, not harder. Be resourceful, not persistent. When you see it done right by your very own body, you'll see with clear vision that's not grainy or spotty. Now, if you rotate this coin to observe the flip side, you can relive mistakes if you have a thick hide. If your footage flops, awkward bows to the crowd, sloppy planes, drops, I watch that footage as I furrow my brow. I must prevent this in the future, but the question is, how? After the 10th time you revisit that painful moment, you'll know where you're deficient. But you're not alone. This world is replete with helpful observers to help get you back on your feet. Take to the net, post videos of your struggle. Fellow flow artists will help you construct the puzzle. Reach out with a caption, tag a similar dancer. What's the worst that could happen? Go ahead, take the chance, sir. We all want to see you learn all the tricks. We'll provide clairvoyance through cordial tips. Take control of your pain and ask your forum of choice. When members offer their input, you'll surely rejoice. Somebody else just might know how to correct your repeated error in ways you might not expect. There's one final reason to watch yourself in slow motion. Your flow face is a riot, 
think of all that emotion. When I look at my mug, mid-performance on stage, there's only contentment, not envy or rage. I stare hard at my eyes, retrospective and grateful. I relish the moments that could be considered graceful. Flow face is a moment to be remembered fondly. Why you wouldn't relive your stardom is surely beyond me. Film yourself in slow motion. You will capture the essence of your heart and soul and learn important lessons. Oh, I liked it. That's very good. And plus, it gives a good message about the importance of recording your performances. Do you want to end with one more? Should we do one more as an encore? Let's bring it all to close, Troy, with uh, one more bit of flowetry. Okay. You know what? I'm going to do a really simple, short one. All right. This one is about, I called it jiggle, which is juggling eagle. I really think there's a lot of value of juggling outside. What are your thoughts on juggling outside versus inside? I like both. I mean, obviously you find yourself in different situations, so it's nice to be able to juggle outdoors. Uh, I prefer to juggle outdoors in the shade. I'm not a guy who likes to stand in the sun and juggle. So I like being outside in the sun, but if it's a nice day and I can be in the shade, I, th I find it very pleasant. I mean, to me, I'd much rather have a good gym space if I had a choice, but I'm a guy who likes to get out in the front yard and juggle, so I like it. Oh, I absolutely juggling outside. Here we go. I'll read a nice short one for us for an encore. Okay, encore. I looked up and saw an eagle while I was juggling on the roof. I like birds more than people while I'm struggling to improve. Nature helps me focus when I throw props in the air. It's always a treat to see wild animals out there. Sometimes it's a bird or bug, other times a squirrel. Sometimes I prefer to shrug and focus on the twirl. The great outdoors will reward those who leave the home. Heightened senses are restored if you achieve the roam. The weather's unpredictable, and that's just why I crave it. Mother Nature isn't that digital. I don't need to explain it. So get outside and juggle. You surely will agree. It's essential that you struggle in the shade of a tree. Nice. So yeah, I echoed what you said about the shade at the end there. That's awesome. <laughs> no, I do like I do like being in the shade. Well, let's say that let's say this this uh, podcast was sponsored by uh, Post-it Notes. <laughs> that would make it sound very impressive. We also just came out with Extreme Post-it Notes, which are uh, water resistant. Nice. And how long are you planning on keeping that job? Is that a job you're thinking about keeping for a long time, or what's your what's your idea about having a real job, and how long should you keep it? For? Oh man, it's a Fortune 100 company, and um, it really is a great compensation package. Obviously, that's why I love teaching. What I'm passionate about. I work with some really high achieving people. I get to work, and today I'll go at a, a wood, um, a lumber mill, and tomorrow I'll go to a metal fabrication shop. So the the variety is incredible. A lot of opportunities for advancement. So I would be, uh, I think my dad would probably kill me if I if I left this job. You know, it's he always thought I would do well in a sales role, but uh, golly, I would love the performer's life. My friends who perform full time, I'm just so envious of them. I'm a tortured soul, Dan. <laughs> well, thanks for sharing your experience with uh, flow and juggling, and your life today, and what you're doing with it, and your flowetry. I really appreciate you being a guest on the podcast, and thanks for reaching out to me. Oh, and be out there listening. Feel free. You know, I'm not looking uh, to be an elitist or to say this only certain jugglers can be on the program. Anybody who has a message or something they want to say, especially something as positive as you, Troy, uh, pleasure of having you on as a guest, and thanks for being on Drop Everything. Awesome. Thank you so much for having me on. You have a great day, Dan. You too. Thanks, Troy. Bye. Thanks for listening to Drop Everything Podcast. Number 74, my conversation with juggler, 
flow artist, fire performer, and LED artist, Mr. Troy Grisa. Thank you, Troy. Hey, you want to thank our sponsor? Then go to juggle.org and find out about the IJA, International Jugglers Association. They put on regional competitions all across the world. They have wonderful products and, of course, a great yearly festival. Next year in 2020 to be held in El Paso, Texas. Now, go out there into the world. Drop everything except when you're juggling.